you're listening to Eco Faith on the Air on Tuchable B Mountains to Sea, 93.3 and 107.3 FM, or streaming live on tuchablebee.net.au, or if you're listening to our podcast for Eco Faith on the Air, uh, we're really glad to be uh, to be with you. So we're well into the season of creation, and it's another panel week, and we've got our full complement. So we've got Byron Smith from St George's Anglican Church in Paddington and Common Grace. We've got Jessica Morthorpe back from holidays, Jessica from Uniting Earth. We've got Jackie Raymond joining us, one of the co-founders of the Global Catholic Climate Movement. And we have Jason John from Uniting Earth in the chair in the studio there at 2BBB and me, Miriam Pepper, calling in from Sydney. So we're going to be focusing again on Season of Creation this week. Uh, we'll have a chance to share some readings once again, catch up and hear about what's going on uh, in our various churches and networks throughout the season. And we're going to talk a bit about National, National Threatened Species Day today as well. So, Byron, it's been probably three months since we've had you on the show, I think. So Yeah. Oh, it's good to be well, back. <laughs> yeah. So what's been happening? Tell us a bit about what's been happening for you uh, with Season of Creation this year. Yeah, uh, so we've, we've had a fairly active um, season here in Paddington um, with a range of visiting speakers, including uh, Dr. Miriam Pepper a couple of weeks ago. Um, with, so it was great to have you here. Um, and uh, uh, we've got a few more weeks coming up. Um, and this Sunday in particular, we're having a, a big um, family Sunday morning service um, where the, the kids will all stay in and we're going to do a whole lot of creative things um, around this week's theme. Uh, but we're also later in the month um, going to be having a uh, beeswax wrap making workshop and um, uh, workshop learning about bees and honey and how to make beeswax wraps with uh, Jessica Morthorpe. And um, so there's there's been, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a wonderful month so far and looking forward to the rest of it. Excellent. And our panel, we're also seeing each other tonight on web conferencing. So, uh, so yeah, hopefully an enhanced experience for listeners um, as we get through our hour tonight. So Jessica Morthorpe, welcome to you as well. I think it's been three months um, since we've had you on the show too. So welcome back after your holiday. You might like to share a bit about that and tell us as well what you've been doing through Season of Creation. Uh, thanks, Miriam. Yeah, um, John and I have been off traveling um, a little bit around the UK and uh, France and Germany. Um, and I can't ever really turn my brain off. So I've been um, investigating all of the cool environmental things that they do over there. Um, I was quite impressed by uh, some of the recycling that they do in Germany, as well as, of course, um, their wonderful uh, renewable energy and things. Um, and checking out even the oldest church in London, right next to the Tower of London there has its own little community garden. Um, so it was great to see some of the things happening over there. Um, and then to come back to my favorite and also busiest time of year in September and the season and getting to catch up with lots of awesome people. Um, and even last weekend, I was down in the Kayama Jamboree area and as well as catching up with the Uniting Church there, um, I got to go to a workshop 
on Sophia, um, so the wisdom of God and bee ecology um, at the Jamboree Abbey there with Sister Veronica, which was just awesome. Um, so there's lots of really cool things happening around the place. Uh, excellent. Thanks, Jess, and really good to have you back. Jackie, I think it's only been three weeks, but tell us a little bit about your season of creation. Well, it's been an interesting time. I've been delving into um, some study and put off in life until the time's come, and here it is. So lots of reading, lots of considering the paradigms, the methodologies, all those good things in the context of Laudato Si' and how it applies uh, in, in practical places like schools. So um, that's been a joy and lots of learning. And um, I've also been up in Brisbane working with uh, a school up there that's on a three-year journey to live Laudato Si' and we're past halfway. There's been a lot of formation for the steering group that's guiding the process with staff and students and we were just planning our engagement for parents to invite them on the journey of ecological conversion and parishioners because there's a church attached to the school so that it becomes a whole community focus. So that's progressing beautifully and um, great to see how much the, the parents of the steering group have stepped up for that task and their enthusiasm to speak at the event and to plan it with all the, you know, details of sustainable food and everything else that's in it. So that's been great. Um, we've also had the big GCAS event over in San Francisco and uh, Global Catholic Climate Movement had significant um, events going on throughout the week, uh, particularly culminating on Friday. There were prayer services that were interfaith as well as ecumenical and, and Catholic. And um, we had uh, a big focus on divestment because the Global Catholic Climate Movement announces twice a year our um, next group and we're really delighted to have Caritas India at the event who have divested and a whole lot of others so that's progressing beautifully. Um, of course there was the big turnout for the climate marches that had a focus in San Francisco Observatory Hill and lots of places across Australia especially Newcastle with our coal port there was a focus so that was really pleasing to see um, you know, people of all ages, of all faiths and none, um, stepping up at a time when we need it the most because we're in such a difficult position with our government leadership stance. Back to you, Miriam. Thank you, Jackie. Just wondering, Byron, can I just ask you, have you, have you followed the release of the latest Divest Invest report? Or you might have as well, as well Jackie. So you mentioned um, Caritas India as part of the latest announcement. I'm just wondering if any of any of my panellists have, have followed the release of the latest Divest Invest report and how that's growing, that divestment movement. Uh, I saw the headlines. Um, I haven't looked in detail at the report, um, but I saw that it had um, uh, the, the total amount um, of uh, funds under management that have divested or committed to divestment has now reached $8 trillion in uh, Australian dollars um, across more than a thousand institutions. Um, and fossil free portfolios have significantly outperformed dirty portfolios over the last five years. Um, uh, and this is in contrast to um, 
the uh, shareholder activism, um, which uh, has has had some small gains, but um, uh, doesn't seems to have had limited effect. Uh, whereas a number of major fossil fuel companies are now in their public reports identifying um, divestment as a material threat uh, to their their future. Mm, so it's where the original, I guess, the divestment movement in its earlier years was very much symbolic, um, is actually moving towards a, you know, increasingly a material effect. And it's so good that that um, the churches and religious groups have have actually been, you know, leading in this movement. I would I would say, it's been really critical. Yeah, the momentum's growing. I mean, we were delighted that the Irish Catholic Bishops Conference have divested in fossil fuels. We haven't yet managed to see a lot of progress with bishops conferences besides uh, Belgium. So mm -hmm. we're hoping that this is a you know the tipping point and and starts to cascade. And we're really delighted that um, 19 Catholic institutions on top of those who had already divested um, stepped up. So I think the number now for the Catholics is 122 Catholic entities have divested from fossil fuels since the global Catholic climate movement campaign began. So that's pretty good. It's only been a couple of years. So, um, and we're not, looking at stopping that momentum anytime soon. There's plenty more to go. That's really inspiring. Really inspiring. And I'm sure the, the GCCM has been has been key to the growth of that movement. Yeah, and I have to acknowledge that um, you that work, we've got two positions at part-time, is from 350.org. Um, and we know how, you know, important their funding is with all sorts of initiatives for us in Australia. So that's another one that they help out with and it's global. So there's no barrier to their assistance with faith and whatever else belief systems going on with this, which is wonderful to have such a great coalition. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks, Byron. Jason, I saw some photos of you on Facebook uh, in Coffs at one of these events that, uh, that Jackie was mentioning we've had recently. Tell us a little bit about what went on in Coffs. Uh, yeah, that was the uh, Rise for Climate, um, the uh, Coffs Coast Climate Action Group, uh, it's a, a massive group per capita uh, for a country town, uh, organised that and I managed to get along, so I think uh, the photo would have been a pretty tiny head behind a hat right down the back row with the tall people. Um, and uh, the Mid North Coast Presbytery was having a retreat on the day as well, so we had our own little Rise for Climate uh, out there um, in the middle of the retreat. Um, which uh, was easier than I thought, actually. Uh, everybody went out there with no uh, need for persuasion. Um, Common Grace has been kind of getting reinvigorated on climate change, and uh, Byron, Jess and myself have all written short pieces uh, for that recently. Uh, and uh, yeah, the other thing that's been keeping me busy is getting ready for this conference on Sunday. Uh, we had the tech test an hour ago, and um, all the presenters that logged in we could hear and see, so that's always reassuring a couple of days out from the conference. Uh, so yeah, it looks like all systems are go for anyone that wants to join us at uh, four o'clock on Sunday, Eastern Standard Time, or uh, eight o'clock on Tuesday for anyone that might need to get along from work. Um, it's so late so that people in Western Australia have got time to get from work and join us as well. Um, but yeah, if you go to uh, unitingearth.org.au and follow the links, you'll uh, find everything about the conference there. 
So this is 2BBB uh, on EcoFaith on the air, and we're talking about the season of creation with our full complement of panellists here today. So if any listeners would like to share on our Facebook page uh, about what you've been doing in the season of creation, please do, and we'll give you a shout out on the radio. Um, my season of creation, so Byron mentioned that I'd had the great pleasure of visiting his church at Paddington. Um, so I did that morning and evening talking about Humanity Sunday, Genesis 1 and 2, and reflecting especially on uh, the recent trips that I've done to different parts of the Murray-Darling Basin over the last four or five years. Uh, and a little bit later, we might talk a bit more about that, because I think we're going to be talking a little bit about praying for rain during, during drought, but we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. Um, I also have my own little go at doing things with beeswax, so uh, rolled some beeswax candles, um, and learnt that it's better to do a double layer of the particular beeswax that, that I was using. Certainly, uh, it goes much better. But uh, yeah, that was really good fun. And we also melted down some candle stubs and reused them. So re-wicked re the candles. So it's really good to uh, do some hands-on uh, things there during the season of creation as well. Jessica, I'm wondering, do you have a reading or a prayer to share with our listeners uh, for the season of creation? Yeah, sure. Um, so this week it was also actually um, in some traditions uh, the feast of St Hildegard of Bingen, um, who is, of course, an incredible person, an incredible um, saint and an incredible um, very early um advocate of what we would now call eco-theology um, and so um, I thought I would just share this little um, quote from her um, she says so many awesome things um, and she's got this whole very interesting philosophy around um, veriditas um, but we don't have time for all that so just this quick little quote without the word of God no creature has been. God's word is in all creation, visible and invisible. The word is living, being, spirit, all verdant greeting, all creativity. All creation is awakened, called by the resounding melody, God's invocation of the word. This word manifests in every creature. Now this is how the spirit is in the flesh. The word is indivisible from God. Thank you, Jess. Would anyone like to respond to Jess's choice of reading or the words of Hildegard there? Just to say I like the word verdant. It's probably not the deepest response straight off the cuff, but uh, every time I hear that word, I always feel good. Um, and Bellingen always is verdant, even uh, in the middle of our the kind of supposed droughts that we have here. Um, so, yes, looking... Verdant and less dusty at the moment as well, which is nice. But uh, probably Verdant mould too at times in Bellingen, Jason. Oh, the mould comes in all colours. <laughs> Verdant's one of them, yes. Some nice blues and yellows as well. And the uh, caravan I hadn't gone into for a couple of weeks, which now serves as my office, and that had some lovely... Uh, my bookshelves were verdant, actually. So, um, yeah, that was nice. Lovely. Jessica, oh, sorry, Jackie, yes. Sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, Say, um, I've got a beautiful um, uh, Pope Francis's leadership, which is no surprise. So that's pretty awesome. Um, and I've got a little um, piece 
written by her too that's, an, I think, a good response to that, Jess. Holy Spirit, giving life to all life, moving all creatures, root of all things, washing them clean, wiping out them as true life, luminous, wonderful, awakening the heart from its ancient sleep. So, yeah, she's... Um, well, it's 839 years, isn't it, since she died? So her spirit goes strong through this story. And thanks for reminding us about her and her feast day. Yes, that's great. Yes, I think she's a favourite of yours, I think, Hildegard Bing, isn't she? I'm getting that impression. Um, yeah, um, she, she's become a recent hero. Um, obviously, we all know Francis, Francis of Assisi. Um, and he's awesome. I, I think Francis has has depths that that we still haven't really explored. Um, but everybody knows him, so he's a little bit boring. So I wanted to find someone a tiny bit less well known <laughs> to talk about as well. Um, and Hildegard's uh, feminism, um, her openness to sensuality. She's got a whole bunch of other really interesting aspects as well. Yeah, and I always like to say, um, Francis, we wouldn't have St Francis without St Clair, but you don't hear a lot about her either. So I think it's really great to highlight the healing women in this story. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Jess. Byron, I'd like to throw over to you. Uh, have you chosen a reading for us? Yes, sorry, once I just uh, un un unmute myself. Um, uh, uh, my my uh, reading is um, from Joanna Macy, um, who's an eco-psychologist um, and uh, very much into also exploring the, the spirituality of um, our psychological responses to uh, ecological crisis. Um, and, and she has a section in her book, um, Active Hope, that she co-authored with Chris Johnston, um, where she just does a little exercise um, that's about gaining a broader perspective, inviting us into um, considering things through a deep time. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll just read uh, about a page. We belong to a planet four and a half billion years old. To make relative time periods easier to grasp, let's look at the entire history of our Earth as a single 24-hour day starting at midnight. In this day of planet time, each minute would mark the passing of more than three million years. At first, the planet was as hot as an erupting volcano, being formed by the gravitational pulling together of materials orbiting the sun. It was, con it was continually... Oh, sorry, have you been able to hear me? Uh, yeah, we can hear you. Yep. Sorry, I think my microphone wasn't uh, in. Um, uh, shortly after midnight, a chunk of matter the size of a small planet had collided with Earth, the impact causing materials to be thrown outward into space to form the moon. It took till nearly two in the morning for the planet's surface to cool down enough for steam in the atmosphere to condense into rainfall. As rain fell and kept falling, the oceans were born. Between three and four in the morning, the first forms of life appeared in warm, shallow water. It took till 10.30 in the morning for photosynthesis to evolve. And from <clears throat> all life forms were single-celled and remained so for the rest of the day. The first more complex multi-celled organisms not evolving till half past six in the evening. By eight, worms had appeared at the bottom of shallow seas, followed an hour and 20 minutes later by the first fish. By a quarter to 10 at night, plant life had become established on land. Soon after 10, amphibians and then insects appeared. 
At 20 to 11, disaster struck in what has been described as the mother of all mass extinction events. A combination of volcanic activity, asteroid impacts and other disasters wiped out 95% of life. But that left plenty of room for the dinosaurs to emerge afterward as the dominant vertebrates on land. The age of the dinosaurs lasted till 20 to midnight when a six mile wide meteorite struck earth and caused the dust cloud to block out so much sunlight um, that the decline in plant life killed off many large animals. Mammals who had been quietly in the background for the last hour emerged to fill the niche of dominant vertebrates on land. 10 minutes later, some mammals returned to the sea and slowly evolved into whales and dolphins. At two minutes to midnight, a small ape in Africa became the last common ancestor of both humans and chimpanzees. At just 20 seconds to midnight, ape-like hominids discovered the use of fire. The entire history of our species from its early origins in Africa is contained in the last five seconds before midnight. A commonplace saying is you can't change human nature. But when we look at the breathtaking span of our planetary history, the idea that we'll never change seems absurd. We are part of the most extraordinary unfolding where will it go next? Mm, indeed. Thanks, Byron. It certainly puts things into perspective. Yeah, it's interesting her her framing of that, isn't it? Um is a is a hopeful <laughs> it's a very a very hopeful framing uh, around the possibility of changed change and the amazement of being part of something that's unfolding um in this way it's often it's often not where we're at <laughs> no i mean I, I i have often been depressed by thinking about deep time um or at least you know made to feel insignificant but she actually invites a different framing as you say where we see ourselves not as reduced to nothing but as included in something much vaster and and larger um and uh thoroughly more than human in which humanity is just one moment in a in a much larger story well i think especially when uh, we factor in there's another day to go um until the sun gets so big that the earth's absorbed so uh the story kind of sounds like it ends with us but um we're pretty much the midpoint um although there might not be too many big brained animals around for more than a couple of hundred million years to go so uh unless we end up jumping in our spaceships and flying off somewhere else uh, we're going to be a fairly small chapter in the story Yes, indeed. Well, yes, there's certainly some some mind-bending and stretching, uh, stretching reading to share with us um, for this season of creation. One thing that uh, that happened early in the season of creation was National Threatened Species Day. So, although before before I do that, I was just wondering if uh, if any other panelists actually had any readings you would like to share uh, with us tonight before I rush on. So. So um, Jackie and Jason and I had that opportunity last time, three weeks ago. Uh, but uh, yeah, Jason, is there anything you would like to share? Uh, I think um, Peter Mayer's song, God is a River, kind of was brought to mind for me, which uh, isn't so much a reading, um, but uh, I could play that for us as we go out or if we... Uh, end up with a break somewhere through the middle I'll, I'll chuck it on then so people can hear that again I don't think we've played it for six months or so so I'm sure we can put it back in the rotation that sounds like a very good idea um, let's let's draw on that a bit a bit later and uh, yeah I'm in, indebted to you Jason for being introduced to Peter Mayer so so thank you for that and I particularly re remember that during the season of creation and we we're uh, very indebted to Peter Mayer for letting us use his songs in a whole bunch of 
conferences and gatherings that we've had. He's been uh, very generous with us. So thank you, Peter. I'm sure you're listening somewhere on 2BBB.net.au, uh, somewhere around the world. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Uh, Jackie, did you have any uh, anything else you wanted to share before we move on and talk about Threatened Species Day? No, that's fine. I didn't... So national national threatened species. Or anything based on the fact that we did it last time. That we did. National threatened species day. So it occurs uh, each year on the seventh of September, National Threatened Species Day. And so the date commemorates the death of the last known thylacine in Tasmania in nineteen thirty six. Uh, so I think as, as some of us uh, might particularly have observed that day. Um, this year, uh, Byron, I know, I know, I know you. Uh, the day that I was at your church, you particularly mentioned this day and its importance. I'm wondering if you would share how you have, if not this year, in the past, celebrated National Threatened Species Day. Or celebrated is not the right word, is it? But perhaps observed National Threatened Species Day. Um. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've uh, in the past um, uh, participated in a, a different, though related day, which is a, um, a day of remembrance for lost species, um, where we've uh, a couple of times held a um, memorial service, really a service of, of uh, grief and repentance and uh, renewed commitment um, in the face of extinction. But if you like, this is the other side of the coin where we, uh, we, we try to hold on to things before they're gone rather than just note the ones that have been lost. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's something I'd like to think about um, more. It's, it's one of those days that I'm, I'm not sure I've had clearly in my calendar and each year it, it snuck up on me. Um, and then I've realized that, that it's already passed before I've had a chance to think about um, what, what to do about it. Jessica, I know, you know, threatened species um, is a particular passion of yours. What are your thoughts on the importance of this day and how, how churches and those concerned about, about it can, can observe that day? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that this is an important day. It's important to remember all of God's wonderful creatures that we've actually lost. Um, usually through our sinful behaviour. Um, and yeah, the day commemorating the death of Benjamin, I think that's very poignant. Um, Benjamin was the, the last thylacine. Um, and I, it always makes me sad to remember that and to think of this beautiful creature um, that, you know, that we actually put a bounty on and hunted to extinction and to think about the irresponsibility of that and, and the combination of factors and misinformation that combined to create that death sentence for an entire species and, and such a unique and special species too. Um, so yeah, this is, is a day that I do think about a lot every year. Um, and um, I often encourage churches to to do some kind of prayer or lament on, on or near this day um, as a way of recognizing, um, yeah, the, the sadness of this day. And, and also um, it's, not, it's not the hope, it, it, it's, 
it's remembering what we've done and regretting it enough that hopefully we'll never do it again. Um, and so, yeah, um, I'd, I'd like to see it, see it remembered more. Um, and I found it interesting that, that we decided to talk about this tonight um, because today there was actually an article in the conversation um, talking about eulogy for a sea star, Australia's first recorded marine extinction. Um, so there's, a, there's an article here uh, talking about the uh, Derwent River sea star, um, which is believed to be the first marine animal in Australia to go extinct. Um, and yeah, I, I am, I'm so very sad to, to think that, that we're still making so many species extinct, um, even here in Australia and in a rich country like ours, we, we don't care enough to, to invest in saving these species, these unique creatures of God, um, you know, none of our children or children's children will ever get to enjoy these species and God will never get to enjoy the presence of these species ever again. They're gone. So, so lament, uh, lament is, is our response, one response. Uh, and I think it's, it's worth adding that, that uh, this is the first documented marine animal extinction. It doesn't mean it's the first species that's gone extinct. It's, it's actually incredibly difficult to um, document uh, an extinction and particularly in the oceans um, because, you know, you've got to try to prove a negative. Uh, you know, it, it's sort of a, well, it hasn't been seen for an increasingly long period of time um, and, you know, targeted searches are unable to turn up any individuals. Um, uh, so in, in a sense, the, the extinctions that we notice are the tip of the iceberg because we're still yet to even document more than a fraction of all the species on the planet. Um, uh, you know, particularly all the, the small little critters, the insects and um, other, uh, you know, um, unobtrusive uh, creatures that um, come and can disappear without us even noticing. And so in a sense, the um, pausing over the ones that we do notice is a symbol of uh, all those that, are, that, that may have gone without us even, even laying eyes on them. Yeah. And yes, that, Jason. I was going to say, I think even though the Joanna Macy uh, reading that uh, Byron brought us makes it clear that species have gone extinct in the past um, and you know, it's only a small fraction of species uh, that have ever existed that are here now. The difference, uh, as Jess was highlighting, is that now it's been driven uh, by the, well, sometimes deliberate and sometimes just uh, ignorant consequences of uh, a species and largely revolves around uh, our greedy expansion um, rather than natural processes and is now accelerating at a rate uh, which uh, rivals that of asteroids and uh, massive volcanic eruptions. Um, so yeah, I think laments very appropriate, even if you know when we try and take a deep time view of things, it doesn't look quite as spectacular. Um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly profound that one species is doing all of this now. Um, on a slightly happier note, if I can throw one in, um, we've actually got uh, 
the giant barred frog uh, at our place, which is uh, listed on the uh, listed as an endangered species. Um, and this year we put in a pond with a little kind of flowing creek part through it specifically so that uh, it'll hopefully uh, find it easier to breed up. It only likes um, breeding in flowing water, which at our place means uh, only gets a few opportunities when it's really rained. Um, but uh, we're hoping we can uh, boost its numbers a little bit uh, without interfering too much. Uh, so yeah, hopefully next year I'll be able to tell you about all the giant barred frog tadpoles we have. Um, and if you're listening to this on uh, local radio around Bellingen, um, the barred frog looks quite a bit like a cane toad, but smoother and with stripes on its legs. So um, please don't squash it, thinking that the cane toads come down from Queensland. <laughs> it's an endangered species. Oh, I was about to ask you how, how giant is giant? Pretty giant. That, not that as, not as big idea. as the biggest cane toad, but, you know, a couple of tennis ball size, the big ones. Mm. And do you know its call? Have you heard it? Uh, yeah, it's one of those rocky calls that I wouldn't dare try and emulate on radio. <laughs> uh, yeah, once, you, once you've heard it, it's pretty easy to pick it. Uh, but we, we see quite a few of them wandering around our place, so we have to um, come down the driveway very slowly after the first rain in particular for a while because they like to sit out on the road. Um, so yes, it can take quite a while to get down our driveways you jump out and scoot the frogs out of the way um which which is i'd much rather have that than have a driveway free of frogs but if i'm late to the radio station next week after the rain then you'll know why i'm not here yet <laughs> jessica uh, i just thought this seemed like a good opportunity uh to throw in a little plug for the frog id app um so the australian museum and their partners have put together um, this little app that you can download on your phone um, called Frog ID. And you can literally just record the sound of any frog call um, and then send it in and they will identify what the species is for you and it goes into their database. So it's giving them really important data for working out what um, frogs are where and how many and all those sorts of things. So it's a great citizen science project to get involved in. Thanks very much, Jess. And perhaps one of these days, Jason, we might have the pleasure of the, the sound of a giant barred frog uh, on here on EcoFaith on the air. Indeed, I'll play it next time. I might even bring one in so you can all see it on the camera, even if our listeners can't. But um, maybe just a photo might be less distressing. Yep. <laughs> this is EcoFaith on the air. We're talking about season of creation and we've been talking about National Threatened Species Day as well. So some of our panellists, I mean, all of us have been uh, busy in our various ways, but there's a couple of uh, articles coming out. So Byron, you had an article published uh, on the ABC Religion website, why it was offensive for the Prime Minister to call for prayer. Uh, Byron, it's a provocative article, very well written. Wondering if you tell our listeners a little bit about, about that article and, and your main point there. Yeah, I was I was trying to chart a middle course, um, if you like, in order to be an equal opportunity um, offender. Um, uh, so recently, the, the new uh, Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, in his first major speech uh, in Albury, um, part of that speech included an acknowledgement of the drought and the suffering um, of rural communities um, and an invitation that uh, to those who pray that they might pray for rain. Um, and the 
the response um, was uh, at one level the remarkable thing that um, though we've had previous prime ministers who have used the language of prayer, um, not usually in their first public speech, but um, uh, there was a lot I saw online, a lot of uh, mockery um, of this idea and a, uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, I guess, I guess people really um, concerned that this was the first step towards a theocracy. Um, and uh, so I wrote an article that was, that was trying to explain on the one hand why I, I don't think we ought to be offended um, that a, a prime minister might uh, speak in the language of prayer. But on the other hand, what is offensive is actually the gap between that invitation and the, the climate policies of the uh, current government um, and the ways in which uh, they are making um, not just this drought worse, but uh, extreme weather all around the globe worse. Um, and so there's a measure of uh, hypocrisy involved in um, praying for an outcome that your own policies are doing the opposite of. Um, it, it, it then becomes uh, you know, possible to see that as quite a, a cynical move to call for prayer when you have it in your power to um, make a difference. Uh, you know, much, much as the, uh, say, Republicans in the US um, sometimes get mocked when they respond to a, um, another mass shooting with, by offering thoughts and prayers, but, but never uh, uh, considering um, that they're, well, reconsidering their stance on gun regulation um, that might actually be able to do something about preventing, you know, future um, uh, tragedies. Uh, so in the same way, our current government, uh, you know, has, has consistently at almost every point along the line done what it can to undermine um, uh, climate policy, um, to, to thwart the expansion of clean energy. Uh, they, they continue to do what they can to subsidise and support coal, um, both financially and rhetorically. Um, uh, and so this really makes a mockery of the idea that uh, we would be um, uh, committing to God um, the, the very act that our government is doing the opposite of. Uh, so that was, that was really the point of my article to try to make those two points. On the one hand, uh, don't, don't mock the prime minister just for asking for prayer. It's not prayer that is offensive. What's offensive is the gap between that invitation and the government's policies. Mm. And what sort of response have you had, Byron? I can imagine you've had a lot of social media people responding to what, you, what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in one sense, um, predictable responses um, from uh, those at either end. So um, some Christians who think that any criticism of a Christian leader is uncharitable and unpeaceable. Um, and at the other end, uh, you know, criticism from some atheists uh, who uh, enjoy their mockery of um, uh, people of faith. Uh, but on the whole, overwhelmingly, I've had a lot of very uh, warm responses from people thankful um, at, uh, yeah, just trying to articulate what, um, what I think a lot of people are feeling. Uh, a, a profound unease um, or, or, you know, through to outrage um, about our, our current uh, climate policies or lack thereof. Um, and the, the 
ongoing unwillingness of our government to draw the dots, um, you know, when confronted with a climate related disaster like the drought, um, a real unwillingness to even talk about the, the climate connection in that context. Yes, um, even perhaps especially in that context. Yeah. Uh, even even harder to do so than perhaps it is outside of drought when heads have been in the sand. I mean, I recently come back from you know trip to the northern Murray-Darling Basin, which has been drought affected for the last five years, and went to so many churches where there were prayers for rain, and you know have been at churches where also there's prayers for rain as well, and people praying for rain, and um, although not I guess hypocritical in that same way. I found it. I have a, found it quite confronting. Um, I have to say, whether it's because of some kind of naivety or, or you know, it's it's about it's about expressing solidarity with communities and places that um, are affected affected by drought, or whether it's also about a, you know a cry from help for for help and desperation um, from mm. those communities. But I have, yeah, so it sort of struggled to deal with that idea of praying, praying for rain. Yeah. yeah what I, do we pray I, for? What do we pray for? And, and what do we mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's entirely appropriate to pray for rain, to acknowledge that we are not in control, even though we may be causing damage. It's not as though we've, we've taken control. What we've done is we've thrown things out of control even further, um, created less predictability. Um, and so I think it's appropriate that we acknowledge that we are recipients of life and we don't um, have the ability to secure the conditions of our ongoing existence. Uh, we receive that from outside. Um, but I think that kind of a prayer ought to lead us towards uh, uh, humility and attentiveness to the, the natural cycles and, and to the water cycle, um, including attentiveness to the ways that the climate might be changing and we might be changing it. Um, so the, the, the problem isn't with the prayers. The problem is when those prayers become a substitute for or a distraction from um, uh, uh, careful attention to the world as it actually is and to the plight of our neighbor. Um, so that rather than caring for our neighbor, we, we, we pray instead. You know, the two ought to go hand in hand. Yeah. Prayer as prayer as action too, I guess. I think sometimes hmm. it's discon there can be profound disconnection, if not distraction or substitution. Perhaps yeah. perhaps disconnection. Morning, other panelists. Jason, were you starting to speak there? Yeah, I, I agree with Byron largely, but um, I wonder if if it's ever possible for prayer not to distract away from that. I mean, the, because the kinds of prayers that are offered strongly implore a lie that God is in control of the rain. The, the humility might be that we're not, um, but they imply that God has the tap and can turn it on and off. Um, and I think there's something about those prayers that just automatically flows against a prayer, for example, to um, uh, you know, for humanity to act on climate change or, you know, and, and in the meantime, for us to work out, well, where can we actually farm um, and where will we be able to farm uh, with the, the climate change that we can't avoid? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the... I think the prayer for rain automatically leads to 
some sense that um, God could fix this um, and that it's not going to come down to human action or um, human... Uh, um, yeah, I don't know what the word is. Human humility. <laughs> um, yeah, I ha haven't yet heard a prayer for rain that doesn't imply that God could just turn on the tap um, if he felt like it. And, and Maybe I think, it's something about the prayer for, the prayer for mm, rain. I think so. And it's difficult because it, it's a little bit like the situation with bushfires where as soon as anyone links bushfires and climate change, they're jumped on and being told that now's, the not, now's not the appropriate time to politicise this because people are suffering. Um, when, of course, actually it's not politicising um, fires or drought to say that climate change is going to make them worse. It's scientising them. Um yeah, and I, th I think that hesitation exists both amongst political leaders and even, you know, the, the Uniting Church's leaders have been quick to pray for rain and to call for kind of charitable donations to farming communities, but slower to call for government action on climate change to, you know, ameliorate uh, these droughts in the future. Yeah, and I guess it very much depends what the content of the prayer is. Yeah, as to whether or not it's a distraction. Um, that is, I think that you can you can pray in a way that acknowledges the um, the interplay between and and the non that, that it's not a zero sum game between divine and human agency. So that as we pray for uh, you know God to um, uh, bring about justice for the poor and oppressed, um, what we are doing is also um, asking that we would hear God's invitation to be part of the, the process through which they receive that justice. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I get that that uh, certain kinds of prayers can often be a um, a substitute for action, but I I just think if 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 that's the case, then you're not doing prayer right. <laughs> Yes. Jackie and Jessica, any thoughts on prayer and prayers for rain, prayers in drought, prayers for political action, prayers that, that move us, um, that invite us to change, you know, as part of the changes that, that we need to see and be part of? Yeah, I um, feel that that internal space of prayer that we then express as community is so important for our own journey of conversion and commission so it's it's prayer that helps us grow in our action and for me one of the things that's come up through this conversation with um, national threatened species day being recently and um commemorated and the season of creation and our plight in Australia is the work of Miriam Rose Ungermere because she has recently had people on her country at the Daily River and there was a great conference I went to a few years ago that we explore relationship Christian perspective and they invited Miriam Rose to be at that so I just want to share something about her wisdom of Didiri, which taps into prayer, which taps into how we can be present to that and 
live it authentically. So these are some of the things that she shared. Awareness of being in the moment, present, fully aware of all, of all things. Two-way listening to the outer and to the inner world and letting what you hear sink in. Listening deeply nurtures the spirit inside the one who is speaking. Dadiri allows the little voices that seem weak among the stronger ones to be heard. Deep calling deep. Dadiri has a sense of being cared for. It helps us connect to the world around us, which has disrupted our connection. Shadows, birds, the weather. This waiting develops patience. We're better informed and make better decisions when we understand the context and the consequences. When we slow down, we connect. We create space by changing the pace of our life. Slow down and let the spring within you feed your spirit. Things, our everything in the natural world. This sustains our lives. Everything has spirit, is alive to us. Nature talks to us, gives us signs of welcome when we are on someone else's country or signs of the change of season and the time to hunt and fish. The best way to learn Dadiri is to be on country with the people who live it and so catch it. And so there's something in this wisdom that's deep within all of us that Miriam invites Australians to be part of, that it's not just um, for Aboriginal people to experience this deep wellspring within and connection. She's inviting us as friends to have the same sense of respect and to walk together, um, to learn this patience and to reconcile. And I think that's, that's what prayer invites us to be present to and that's what, um, paying attention to the threatened species around us does. You know, I was thinking tonight when everyone was sharing stories about threatened species, the penguins that are here in my neighbourhood are the last colony of fairy penguins in on the whole coast of New South Wales. There's 70 of them left. There are wardens of the penguins who each night go down to particular parts of the harbour and watch for the particular penguins to come in. They've all got names. They've all got personalities that are loved and connected with. And I think this connection is what we're always called to be part of. But I'm so mindful that the busyness of life means that so many people are not participating in that opportunity for relationship. So I agree with you, Jess. I think Threatened Species Day is an opportunity to lament so that we can in that, have that inner change and again reach out in relationship as we're called to. This has been Eco Faith on the Air here. Uh, we've been talking about the season of creation, we've been talking about National Threatened Species Day, prayer, and the gap between uh, prayer and action. And we actually have a presenter following us tonight, uh, the wonderful Raven. So it's time for us to, to 